0: Our scripture reading this morning is going to be taken from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 16, and also from the book of Revelation, chapter 20. You can find those uh, printed in the bulletin. We are in a series that we've been in for several weeks where we're attempting to answer some of the major objections to the Christian faith. Um, And today we're dealing with the doctrine of hell. Uh, A poll was taken in 2003 and... This poll revealed that while 64% of Americans expect to go to heaven when they die, less than 1% expect to go to hell. Uh, We don't like the idea of hell. It's not something we like to think about very often. And the way you will hear this objection to Christianity voice is, I can't believe in a God like that. I can't believe uh, in a God who would actually send people to hell. How could a loving God do something like that? Uh, and honestly, hell, uh, judgment, wrath—these are probably some of the most offensive parts of Christianity uh, to most Americans. And I get that. Uh, It's—it's kind of hard to, to get your arms around. Uh, it, it's something that we that we tend to pull back from, to draw back from. It's not something that I'm like really. About preaching on, to be honest. Uh, it's, it's weighty, uh, and, and it's offensive all at the same time. Uh, but Jesus talked about hell. In fact, Jesus talked about hell a lot. He talked about it more than anybody else in the Bible, and it really is a key part of the Christian faith. So today what we're going to do is look real briefly at what the Bible actually says about hell. And then we're going to talk about why we have so much trouble with the idea of hell. And then we're going to talk about how we actually need it. Uh, so before we get into that, let me read God's word to us. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. This is the word of God. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple with fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. Who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. More open, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham! Have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send into my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Then from Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who was seated on it. From His presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Uh, Father in heaven, this is uh, weighty. This is uh, serious. Uh, if we're honest, this is hard for us. Um, and so we pray for your help. We pray that, that you would help us see the reality of uh, of your word and the things you speak about in your word. And that you would give us faith to trust you, that you are righteous and just, and that indeed the judge of all the earth will do right. We pray it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Alright, so here's what we're going to do again. What, what does the Bible teach about hell? Why do we have so much trouble with that? And then why we actually need this doctrine? Uh, first of all, what does the Bible say about hell? Uh, hell in the Bible is this place of eternal, of, of final, eternal punishment. Uh, for those who... Uh, In the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians, he says it's for those who don't know God, for those who don't know God and who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Hell is described at the Bible in various places as a place of fire and darkness, a place of weeping, a place of gnashing of teeth, a place of torment, and a place of destruction. That's that's hell in the Bible in a nutshell. Uh, Why do we have so much trouble with that? Why do we have so much trouble with what the Bible says uh, about hell? I, I think that as Americans we have trouble with this doctrine for both cultural reasons and theological reasons. And I want to kind of explore both of those a little bit. First of all, the cultural reasons. One of the reasons we have trouble with the idea of hell is is that we have a general kind of generic disbelief in the supernatural in our society. I think we're a lot more affected by scientists like, and you probably don't remember it, but scientists like Carl Sagan who said, uh, the cosmos is all there ever was and all there ever will be. Uh, we're, we're born for no reason, we live with no purpose, we die and we're forgotten and And that's it. And so we kind of have a little bit of this anti-supernatural bent to our culture. We're we're very much influenced by uh, being materialist. But I think a a bigger cultural reason may be that, that we tend to think that we have the right to determine what is right and what is wrong for ourselves. And so when we hear the Bible, for example, say something like sex outside of marriage is wrong and that God may actually punish us for doing something that he said is wrong, we're offended by that. Because can I decide for myself whether this is good for me or not good for me? Uh, We tend to think that we have the right to decide what spiritual reality actually is for ourselves. We talked about this a few weeks ago. That instead of trying to determine what spiritual reality is, and then submitting ourselves to what spiritual reality is really like, we think that we can actually define what it is for ourselves. That whatever I think spiritual reality is, that's what it is. Whatever is true for me is actually true, Uh, even though that doesn't work in anything else. We tend to think that way as Americans. Uh, The Huffington Post this week, I saw an article online that they're actually having a design-your-own-religion contest. Uh, And this is, I believe, the third time they've done this. And I want you to listen to their description of their their own contest. Uh, Two years ago, we held our first Create Your Own Religion competition. You submitted religions like Tetrisism, Friends of the Almighty Thumber the Rabbit, and The Church of Latte Saints. You crowned the winner, Murphism, a religion with a ritual of drinking Miller High Life and Jameson Irish whiskey during Eagles games. Now, while Murphists don't outnumber Christians yet, I'm sure its beliefs like life is meant to enjoy the hell out of and shaving is optional will soon reach the popularity of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> now it's time for the 2013 edition of this competition. Submit your religion in the slideshow below. Make sure to include your beliefs rituals holidays all right it's okay to kind of be to to laugh at that it it is kind of funny but it also reflects how we tend to think in a silly way um, we really do think that we can design our own spiritual reality i mean it's all just made up anyway right so let's just design one that fits me so if that's the case if spiritual reality is whatever i make it to be then why in the world would i come up with the idea of hell who in the world wants that that, that's actually a, a offensive. But we ought to question at least why it's offensive to us. Um, Tim Keller tells a story of somebody coming up to him after a service and saying, he's been preaching on hell, and they said, that that's actually offensive to me. The idea of a God of wrath is offensive to me. Uh, and he looked at the person and said, well, why isn't a God of, the idea of a God of forgiveness offensive to you? Why is that not offensive to you? Cool. Can't you see what he's saying? Can't you see how your culture has actually influenced the way you think about God? Because in other cultures, it's the idea of forgiving God that's actually offensive. And so we really have to do a little bit of self analysis and realize that there are cultural reasons, cultural influences on us that cause uh, the idea of, of hell to be offensive to us, that give us reasons that give us trouble. Uh, there are also, though, I think theological reasons why we have trouble with the, with the idea of hell. Uh, one of them is we're uncomfortable with hell because we're uncomfortable... Well, let me rephrase that. We're uncomfortable with hell because we underestimate the holiness of God. What was the, the first hymn we sang this morning? Holy, holy, holy. Now, where does that, where does that phrase come from in the Bible? It actually comes from uh, the book of Isaiah chapter 6. And in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah has this vision of being in the very throne room of God. And he's scared to death because there are these freaky looking heavenly creatures flying around screaming, holy, holy, holy. And God is in there and the room is shaking and it's filled with smoke. And he's just completely freaked out. Uh, A friend of mine who was a a Navy chaplain described to me what what it was like to be on the deck of an aircraft carrier at night when the planes were taken off and landing. And just the the noise of that and the intensity of that and and, and how almost scary that was, the the flashes of light involved in that. Take all of that, take that experience and pack it into the throne room of God. And Isaiah is, is freaked out. But what's interesting is that's not the main reason he's scared. The noise and the commotion of it, that's not the main reason he's scared. He's scared because he recognizes the holiness of God. And he actually says, Woe to me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And that's a very common reaction in the Bible that people have when they are actually in God's presence. Uh, Job, in the book of Job, wants his moment, his moment with God. And then he finally gets it. And in chapter 42, verse 5, he says, My ears had heard of you, he's talking about God, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Uh, Peter has this moment when he really gets a glimpse of the majesty of Christ and he says, Go away from me. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Uh, People in the Bible are undone when they actually come into God's presence because they know they are not morally pure and they are standing in the presence of absolute moral purity. Purity that exposes the thoughts of our hearts and the lust of our eyes. Purity that exposes our pride and our willfulness purity that exposes everything about us is exposed by God's holiness and the Bible says that's what God is actually like that we can't just if we don't like that think of him in a different way but this is who he actually reveals himself to be now the second reason that's that's very closely tied into this which I was alluding to even as I talked about it is we have trouble with the idea of hell because we don't understand the holiness of God and we we underestimate the holiness of God and we also underestimate the sinfulness of man. We really do tend to think that we're pretty good people. Uh, Maybe we had a bad upbringing. We got dealt a bad hand. You know, our family didn't have enough money. Whatever, these things happen to us. It's because of our upbringing or environment or lack of education and if we can just work those things out. But we're really fundamentally good at heart. And what the Bible says is the exact opposite of that. Uh, Romans 3. That, that no one is good, no not one. That actually at our core we're not fundamentally good. We're actually fundamentally bad and sinful. That we've uh, chosen to ignore the Creator. And, and to make our own, our own, our own rules uh, but again, you see in the Bible, when people are confronted with this absolutely holy creator, absolutely morally pure being, that sense of, oh, I'm okay, that goes away very quickly when you see yourself in the light of God's holiness. Uh, it, it's almost its as if each one of us is a guest in God's house. Uh, we're drinking His water. We're breathing His air. And we're ignoring the one who owns the house. Or maybe even worse, assuming that we own the house. And telling God how we ought to be allowed to decorate the house. And then God shows up and he's like this 200 foot giant who just takes the roof off the house and appears. And he's like, what are you doing in my house exactly? Whose house is this that, that you presume to own? We underestimate the holiness of God. We underestimate our own sinfulness. And so hell doesn't make sense to us. And the third reason we have trouble with hell is that we don't realize that God is absolutely just. That He is this perfectly, this morally perfect being who made us, who created us, who owns us, and who gave us life. And so He is perfectly just when He condemns us for our sin, for our rebellion. He's perfectly just in His judgment. Uh, I'd encourage you maybe to read through the first three chapters of Romans actually today uh, if, if, you're, if you're wrestling with this. Um, because I think we have trouble with the idea of hell because we, we haven't really rightly understood who God is. And so before you wrestle with hell, you've got to wrestle with God and who God is and who you actually are. But, but those chapters of Romans show that God's justice is just. His judgments are just. They're accurate. They're fair. He doesn't show favoritism. They're righteous. Uh, and in chapter 3, verse 19, it says that every mouth will be stopped as you come before God. That you won't be able to open your mouth to, to, to speak anything in your own defense because we're all guilty before Him. We don't get to sit in judgment over God. God sits in judgment over us, and that's His right as the perfectly holy maker of all things. Now, everybody take a breath. Um, that's, that's all, that's all kind of heavy. Uh, again, I'm saying all that to say, if this is your issue, then think about the fact if there's some cultural influences there that you've got to work through. Some predispositions to not like this idea of hell. There's some theological issues you've got to work through. What's what's God really like? What am I really like? Is He really just? Before you can even begin to tackle this. And then ask yourself, am I really willing to think through this idea? Am I willing to think it through the Bible? And through the lens of the Bible and what it says and not what I want it to say. So... um, Anyway, the next thing I want us to talk about, um, what it is, why it's difficult for us, and then why we actually need it. Why do we actually need this doctrine of hell? I want to give you three reasons. Uh, The first reason we, we need it is we need it to see what actually lurks in our own heart. We need it so that we can see what actually lurks in our own heart. And the danger involved in living for what lurks in our own hearts. Uh, uh, Again, uh, first three chapters of Romans. uh, Look specifically at at Romans chapter 2 as as you're reading this. Romans 2 tells us that when we, actually Romans 1 and 2, tells us that when we reject God and go our own way, that God punishes us by giving us over to the desires of our heart. When we reject God and go our own way, God punishes us by giving us over to the desires of our hearts. Now, now, think about that for a minute. When we reject God and go our own way, God gives us exactly what our hearts desire in order to punish us. Now, one of the ways you can see that where it's obvious is when people get entangled in addictions that they can't escape from. They're they're getting, in one sense, exactly what they want, but exactly what they want is at the same time destroying them. Uh, Addictions, we can see how they lead to to disintegration in our lives, how they lead to isolation in our lives. Uh, They they lead to to destruction because it always takes a bigger hit to get the same rush. You always want more and you're getting less satisfaction. And you keep giving yourself to it, whether it's porn or alcohol or whatever. It it just entangles you because whatever little bit you're getting is never enough. So you have to keep going back for more. And it's less and less satisfying. While at the same time that that's going on, you can't really see the truth about what's going on in your own life. And it's always somebody else's fault. And there's always somebody else to blame. Nobody understands me. Well, what if that... Alright, think of that sort of dynamic, alright? What if that goes on forever? Not just forever till you die. What if that dynamic goes on past the grave? What if that dynamic goes on for all eternity? What if, What if hell involves God giving us over to the deepest desire of our heart which is to be independent from Him, which is the thing in our sin that we most want, but the thing that at the same time is most destructive of who we are. And what if that goes on forever and ever and ever? Um, Y'all know I'm getting a lot of material in this series from the book Reason for God by Tim Keller. Uh, He's also written a very succinct article about hell. it's on the Redeemer website I'll send it out as part of the newsletter this week, but he, but he said this, and I think this is helpful for us. What is hell then? It is God actively giving us up to what we have freely chosen. It's God actively giving us up to what we have freely chosen to go our own way, to be our own master of our own fate, the captain of our own soul, to get away from Him and His control. It is God banishing us to regions we have desperately desperately tried to get into all our lives. J.I. Packer writes, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever worshiping Him, or without God forever worshiping themselves. If the thing you want most is to worship God and the beauty of His holiness, then that is what you will get. If the thing you want most is to be your own master, then the holiness of God will become an agony. And the presence of God, a terror, you will flee from forever. Because I would say here's here's why this is so significant. First, it tells us that people only get in the afterlife what they have most wanted either to have God as savior and master or to be their own saviors and masters secondly it tells us that hell is a natural consequence hell is a natural consequence even in this world it is clear that self-centeredness rather than god-centeredness makes you miserable and blind the more self-centered self-absorbed self-pitying and self-justifying people are the more breakdowns occur more breakdowns occur Relationally, psychologically, and even physically. They also go deeper into denial about the source of their problems. On the other hand, a soul that has decided to center its life on God and His glory moves toward increasing joy and wholeness. We can see both of these trajectories even in this life. But if, as the Bible teaches, our souls will go on forever, then just imagine where these two kinds of souls will be in a billion years. Hell is simply one's freely chosen path going on forever. We wanted to get away from God, and God, in His infinite justice, sends us where we wanted to go. In the parable that we read this morning of the rich man and Lazarus, you can see a little bit of this trajectory in the rich man's life. The rich man is in hell, uh, he's being tormented but he still thinks of Lazarus as somebody who's supposed to serve him. Hey, would you send Lazarus down here to give me some water? And he wants Abraham to go and to warn his brothers about hell. Uh, Many commentators have said that this isn't compassion on the rich man's part, but it's actually blame-shifting on his part. He's implying, hey, if, if I had had more information... Why don't you go tell them? Because nobody showed up to tell me. If I had had more information, then I wouldn't be in this situation. I wouldn't be here. So give them more information so they don't wind up here too. And you can see he is still angry. He's in denial. He's still blame shifting. He's not become somebody who suddenly repentant about his life. There is a trajectory established in his life while he was alive. And that trajectory goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. C.S. Lewis put it this way. We read this a few weeks ago. Hell begins with a a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. And so one way to think about hell is that while it is physical torment, it's also eternal eternal spiritual torment. It's eternal spiritual, emotional decomposition. And apart from the grace of God, there is the seed of hell in each one of us that will grow up to actually be hell if it's not nipped in the bud. I mean, I, I, I imagine your anger. Going on forever and ever and ever and getting worse and worse. Imagine your lust continuing to grow, but you're increasingly less able to satisfy it. And it never gets any better. Imagine your fear and your worry that just build on themselves for all eternity. Well, I think in some ways, uh, Breaking Bad is a very good picture of hell. I know a lot of y'all don't watch this, and that's, that's great, um, and you're probably tired of me talking about it. But I really think it, it is a compelling view of what hell really is like, except it's, it shows us in real time on Earth what it's like. It shows us the beginning of the trajectory that these guys are unable to get out of, and paints a very good picture. Uh, Brady Bad tells the story of Walter White, who is this chemistry teacher, high school chemistry teacher. He uh, is diagnosed with lung cancer. In order to provide for his family, he starts cooking crystal meth and selling that. Now, people have offered him to pay for the treatments for his cancer, but in his pride, he refuses to take their money. And so the whole show is, is, is him building his empire, refusing the help of others, and becoming this criminal mastermind that's it in a nutshell Uh, but we talked about this last week and we said that even before he became heisenberg even before he became the criminal genius he already carried around in him the seed of pride and bitterness and anger this this desire to prove that he mattered that he was somebody and then the right set of circumstances came along and all those things exploded And as the series progressed, Walt, the chemistry teacher, became Heisenberg, the meth mastermind. And all these things that were in seed form at the beginning of the show blossomed in his life. He wasn't even Walt anymore. And there's this classic scene where he's yelling at the guy, Say my name, who am I? And it's Heisenberg. It's like, dang straight, that's who I am. He doesn't even have the same identity anymore. He is simply this prideful, arrogant, self-justifying person. He's asked, why are you doing this? And he always says, he's in denial. He's always saying, it's for my family. It's for my family. Can't you see I'm killing all these people for my family? And yet in the process of all this, he's wrecking his own life. He's wrecking his family's life. He's wrecking the lives of countless people around him. And he's trapped there. He's trapped there. He's in a hell of his own making. He's in a hell of his own choosing. Uh, uh, Imagine that in your life. You see how his sins operated. Imagine that in your life. Your sins. Your your freely chosen identity apart from God. God going on forever and ever and ever and never being able to escape from them. It's been said that hell is a prison where the doors are locked first from the inside by us before they're locked from the outside by God. We need the doctrine of hell because it shows us our potential in a very negative way. It shows us the reality of what lies in our hearts and what can happen in our hearts and lives if we're not affected and changed by the grace of God. But there's a second reason we need help. I think we need help because we, we find ourselves wanting justice. And then, don't you feel that at times? You see something happening in the world and you want justice. I mean, you you read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, and, and you're thinking... Man, the rich man deserves justice. He deserves to be punished. Lazarus deserves justice. But if there's no heaven and there's no hell, then what? Lazarus, the way the rich man treated Lazarus in his life doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There's no ultimate judgment. And yet we find ourselves thinking, there are things that need to be put right. There are crimes that have been committed that, that justice needs to be served. the the writer of Breaking Bad, Vince Gilligan, was interviewed and he said this, I feel some sort of need for biblical atonement or justice or something. I like to believe there's some comeuppance that karma kicks in at some point, even if it takes years or decades to happen. My girlfriend says this great thing that's become my philosophy as well. I want to believe there's a heaven, but I can't not believe there's a hell. I can't not. There's got to be a hell. If, if justice is going to be served in this world, there's got to be a hell. But if there is no hell, then everyone, everyone, in the end gets away with everything. We need hell. A third reason, this is the final thing. We need hell to fully understand, to fully understand how much God loves us. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We deserved help but God sent His Son to stand in our place to rescue us from hell because He loved us. Because He loved us. What the Apostles' Creed tells us is that Jesus descended into hell. Jesus underwent the torment and anguish of hell on the cross for us because He loved us. So that if we trust in Him, so that we put our faith in Him, we never have to undergo the anguish of hell ourselves. We never have to experience it. You can never understand how much Jesus really loves you until you understand... The cost that he paid on the cross. Until you understand what he actually did on the cross, uh, imagine if I were to run into one of you later in the day and say, "I don't know why, but one of your bills came to my house and I paid it for you." Now, if it was, you know, if it was the the gas bill or the water bill or, or the cable bill, something seventy five bucks, you might say, "Oh, thanks a lot." But if you found out I paid your mortgage, or if you found out I paid your 10 years due of back taxes the IRS was about to come after you for? You would love me a lot more. You would appreciate the cost that I had paid for you in your place. When we understand what Jesus actually accomplished on the cross for us, that He actually paid the price of hell, that He descended into hell for us, we can see how much He really loved us. Do you see how much he loved you do you see how far he was willing to go for you so that you can know god Let me close with this um, i think breaking bad again um, shows us a couple of ways that we can actually get trapped on this pathway to hell and we see him in the two different characters the two main characters but one is, is Walt's way. And Walt's the chemistry teacher, the main guy. He's, he's trapped in his pride. He's trapped in his bitterness. He's trapped in his self-justifications. I'm doing this for my family. It's the right thing that I'm doing. At one point he even says, if you believe that there is hell, I don't know if you're into that, but we're, we're all pretty much going there, right? Right? Well, I'm not going to lie down until I get there. He knows that's where he's headed because of what he's done, but he's not going to quit what he's doing. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to lie down until I get there. I may be going to hell, but I'm not repenting. I'm going out like I'm going out. Jesse, on the other hand, who's the other main character, he gets it. He knows that he's that he deserves to be punished for what he's done. He knows that he just can't go to the therapy grief and accept who he is and forget the past. He knows that there needs to be an atonement for his sins. And so there's one point in the series where it's all just kind of come crashing down on him. And he's got this bag of, I don't remember how much money, $5 million stuffed in a duffel bag. And it's blood money, and he knows it's blood money. And so he drives up and down the streets of the poorest section of town throwing wads of $100 bills out into people's driveways like the morning paper. And he just goes from house to house throwing them out the window. He's trying to, to atone for it. He's trying to get the weight of sin off of himself. He's trying to get some relief. If only I can do this, I can make up for it. I can pay for my crimes. I can pay for my sins. But he can't do it. He can never find relief the crimes he's committed by trying to do something to make up for it. He can't pay for his own sin. He can't let himself out of hell. So there's two places we could be. If you're Walt, uh, if you're embracing your sin, you're precious. Uh, no matter how small you may think it is, if you're embracing that, the uh, There's a warning in this. There's something growing up in you right now. There's something growing up in you right now that will be hell unless you turn to Jesus and let Him deal with that in your life. It will be hell. It will destroy you. But it also speaks to us that we're in Jesse's shoes. If you're very aware of your sin and it's weighing you down and you're beating yourself up about it, maybe you're even hurting yourself because of it. Maybe you've been cutting yourself because of it. Because you're trying to pay the price for your sin. You're trying to atone for it yourself. You can't. You can't. You never can. You never will. You can never remove the burden yourself when there's somebody you have. The Lord Jesus Christ has come to pay that debt. The Lord Jesus Christ has descended into hell for you and offers you free forgiveness. He offers you freedom from the burden, freedom from the shame that you feel if you will simply come to Him. He loves you and He longs to set you free. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, um, I pray that you would use this for us to see what really dwells in our own hearts and that we would see how serious it is and how much we need you to save us from it. Uh, Father, I pray for those of us who have seen it and yet are busy condemning ourselves, busy beating ourselves up, that we would stop that. And turn and we would see that Jesus has been condemned for us to free us because he loves us. Father, would you set us free? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.